Hello, and welcome to the podcast edition of The Tar Sands Diplomat, a novel of the Canadian Foreign Service. I'm Keith Halliday, the author. Have a look at the back cover blurb, if you haven't already. The Russians have a plan to kill Canadian oil exports, and Canada has a diplomat clueless enough to stop them. Have you ever read about an international scandal and wondered whether something similar could happen in Canada? Remember when our Minister of International Development purchased a $16 glass of orange juice in a London hotel and it hit the front pages for days? Is that as bad as it gets in Canada? Is it because we're clean? Or is it because our leaders don't have the imagination to think up a really big scandal? Or is it because our leakers and investigative journalists simply aren't trying hard enough? Remember certain former prime ministers and allegations of envelopes stuffed with cash related to international aircraft deals? Well, these were exactly the kind of thoughts that were crossing McGregor's mind as his dream posting in Brussels turned into a nightmare. The Tar Sands Diplomat aims to tell a ripping yarn about an improbably big, amusing, and occasionally alarming Canadian diplomatic scandal. At the centre is McGregor, a Canadian Foreign Service officer who's in a rut on both the career and personal fronts. He jumps at the chance to escape Ottawa to a dream posting in Brussels until a red-haired Russian prostitute dramatically murders the Canadian mission's star diplomat with an Inuit statue, no less, and plunges him into a world of spooks, big oil, Russian oligarchs, and eco-hacktivists, whatever they are. No more spoilers for now. We'll get to the story in a minute. As for me, the author, I was posted at the Canadian mission to the European Union in Brussels, where I rocketed up to be the 12th most important diplomat at the mission. When you're Canadian number 12 in a major international capital, that really says something. My colleagues at the mission were fantastic, one of the best things about that posting. None of them feature as disguised characters in this book. And if you're one of my frenemies from the department, you're not in the book either. Everything is fiction, and any similarities to persons or events are, as they say, purely coincidental. I started the Tar Sands Diplomat when I was on a chemotherapy-induced vacation from my day job, about a decade ago. I survived the cancer, and I've decided I need to get this book out there, before I die of something else. A few agents expressed interest in pursuing formal publication, but those negotiations are moving as quickly as Russia-Ukraine peace talks, and with a similar likelihood of success. So, until I get the call from Hollywood, telling me they want to make Tarzan's Diplomat into a blockbuster, with Colin Firth starring as McGregor, I've decided to publish the book myself and share this podcast with you. Hope you enjoy it. You can find out more about the book, and me if you want to, at my website, keithhalliday.com, or on iTunes. If you are an agent, publisher, or even better, Colin Firth's producer, I'd be delighted to hear from you via the contacts page on my website, keithhalliday.com, or directly to me at khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com. If anyone else has comments, please also email them to me. I'd be delighted to hear them. And, as I once heard a departmental colleague say, your comments are so important, they'll be stored in a filing cabinet in the same building that the minister works in. The plan is to podcast the entire book, read by me, the author, one episode at a time over the next few weeks. With all that out of the way, let's get to McGregor in Chapter 1. The story is told in his voice. Oil and Murder, Canadian Style Damn LaFranc for leaking the draft of this memoir. I don't think the Canadian media even remembered we had a foreign service, but, once reminded, they were delighted to copy and paste all the sensational details onto the front page. My story had it all. Bribery and sex in exotic European capitals, the tar sands, 
billion-dollar pipelines, a mad Russian oligarch, and brutish blonde stormtroopers from the Prime Minister's office. Oh, and mostly forgotten in the hubbub, the murder of one of the finest young Foreign Service officers the department had tricked into joining in years. I know LeFranc was trying to help. McGregor, you've got to get your side of the story out, he would say as he swirled his Lefroy. Don't let the bastards get away with this. I admit that I enjoyed the spectacle of our minister in question period, claiming simultaneously that the draft was a forgery and also not authorized for publication. On television, he kept glancing nervously over at the prime minister, as if he was afraid his leader planned to order someone to put the proverbial nine grams of lead into the back of his neck, which was probably exactly what the PM was thinking about. Of course, Lefranc wasn't the one who had to sit through interminable meetings afterwards at the department. I denied everything, of course, despite being tortured with stale donuts and insultingly incompetent investigators who couldn't have found a leak in the men's room. They knew it was me, but couldn't prove it. I'd heard how the jilted ex-first lady of French President Hollande kept her tell-all memoirs from leaking until she wanted them to. So I typed mine on a new laptop, purchased with cash, and which I never connected to the internet. Security division tore the computers they knew about apart, and all they found out was that people in the minor Eastern European statelets section have to go to a lot of very boring meetings. They did find a few hasty and, in retrospect, excessively bitter emails about Duncan Dunscap Kenty getting promoted instead of me. Never send an email you wouldn't want to see on the front page of the newspaper, as they say, or, as adapted for the department, never send an email you don't want vengeful security division people forwarding from your account. In retrospect, describing Dunscap as an inactive volcano of PowerPoint slides and someone who never disagreed with anyone paid more than him probably just confirmed to my superiors that they had picked the right man. Security also found a few embarrassing messages I sent my wife Elizabeth shortly after she emailed to say she was leaving me to move in with, believe it or not, an economist from the Department of Finance. My views on middle-aged economists who read the Ottawa Citizen in New Edinburgh cafes while wearing spandex jogging gear are best kept to myself. Somehow, again despite our multi-binder privacy policy, my emails were soon circulating around the department, and people were asking me about fitness apparel in the elevators. It's clear that the top mandarins at the department were more upset about an embarrassing leak than Julian's murder. Now that the draft is out there, I'll finish the job. Like most reporting telexes, the official report on the incident leaves out all the good stuff. No one ever got posted to Greenland for suppressing an embarrassing fact, to quote another departmental aphorism. My superiors have edited dozens of my reports into meaninglessness over the years, and shredded many more. If you read our archives, you'll have trouble finding a time we were outvoted at the United Nations, outsmarted in Paris, or outmuscled in Washington. This time will be different. This document will be my attempt to tell it like it really happened. No one will be able to shred it, since I don't intend to submit it officially. It can circulate clandestinely inside the department and among friends, passed hand-to-hand, like an old Soviet-era Samizdat copy of Bulgakov's Master and Margarita. If I end up getting blamed for the whole affair and transferred to the culture division, this may be the last thing I write that anyone ever reads. The Tarsans Diplomat, Chapter 2. I am drawn into L'Affaire Tarsans. My involvement in L'Affaire Tarsans, as one of the Paris papers called it, began innocently enough. I should have known it was too good to be true. One minute, my career and I were stuck in the minor Eastern European statelets section. The next, our new Uber Assistant Deputy Minister Alan Dorff was offering me the plum posting of political counselor in Brussels. 
well, political counselor ad interim, until Cameron Fanshawe recovered from his gout. I should have been offended, and perhaps worried, that I was his sixth choice for the job. At least that's how it appeared as I read his notebook upside down across the desk. There was a list of six names. Five of them were crossed off, with various acronyms beside them. Desjardins, NATO, Cumberland, LOA, Fritzel, DUI, and so on. Smedling's name was scribbled over particularly violently. My name was at the bottom, written in a different color, as if added later. Dorf was new to the department. He'd been sent over from finance to stiffen our spines. I'd hardly spoken to him, although I noticed his eye tended to linger on me at branch meetings when he made incomprehensible remarks about focus and being more impactful. Eastern European files didn't seem to interest him. In fact, Dorf hadn't even invited me the only time the minister had to be briefed on my issues. It wasn't an entirely bad thing, since I probably wouldn't have been able to resist saying something career-limiting when our minister asked the Azerbaijani ambassador why people from the Caucasus didn't look more Caucasian. I didn't even know people got gout anymore, complained Dorf, looking at his list and adding a gratuitous exclamation point beside the word gout at the top of the page. It's more typically known as the disease of kings, not mid-level Canadian foreign service officers, I agreed. Poor Fanshawe. He was sent home from Brussels to a clinic in the Gatineau Hills, where sawdust cereal replaced his pole de riz de veau au truffe fraîche. This is as close as Canada gets to the old Soviet habit of inviting diplomats home for consultations and then shooting them. And Smedling! A skiing accident this morning, in June, complained Dorf, striking out Smedling's name again. Like certain finance economists I loathe, Smedling was a fitness fanatic. They didn't have spandex when Shakespeare wrote, but if they did, I'm sure Julius Caesar would have mentioned it when he was telling Mark Antony not to trust thin people. Smedling was always boring you to death about running the Marrakesh Marathon or some other extreme sport ego romp through Al-Qaeda-controlled malarial swamps. Apparently, he'd begun training six months early to do the gold coureur de bois level of the Canadian Ski Marathon, which involves skiing 160 kilometers over two days, with a frosty outdoor bivouac in the middle. He was training on the Gatineau Parkway with those skis with little wheels, going downhill at full speed when he plowed into a van parked on the shoulder. Apparently, his head badly dented the van's rear door. That's why I don't listen to Scriabin, I observed to Dorf. He stared at me blankly. Smedling likes the atonal stuff, like the White Mass Sonata. He probably couldn't tell the difference between the music on his headphones and people honking at him. Dorf continued to stare at me. I guessed that if the Russians bothered to bug his car, they probably had to listen to a lot of Brian Adams. With the European trade deal off track again, we really need to get someone over there to replace Fanshawe right away. Julian's a high performer, but he's still junior. Dorf said in a serious tone, trying to regain control of the meeting. Do you have any operational commitments in Ottawa? I looked at my calendar. I would have preferred going jogging to most of the meetings in it. Only my briefing for the class of new recruits on the history of the department, I replied. I'm supposed to do 1909 to 1980. Dorf laughed, as if I'd said something to break the ice. I can never tell when you guys are joking, he replied with a light chuckle. Historical briefing for new recruits. That's a good one. I got the impression he looked forward to recounting the episode to his buddies at Treasury Board. Except I wasn't joking. For the last ten years, I've briefed every new class, except for the time a new personnel officer replaced me with a ghastly CBC documentary. Usually my session is after the oath to the Queen, and before they explain Foreign Service pay and benefit details, like our body part repatriation program. I like to help the next generation get off to a good start, and, after years in the department, 
I welcome the energy and enthusiasm that rub off the new recruits. The problem with briefing the new recruits was that it inevitably provoked memories of when I joined the department, fresh from studying the Pearsonian Golden Age of Canadian diplomacy during the Second World War and afterwards. I was full of ambitions to broker peacekeeping deals and win Nobel Prizes in a world where diplomats were still, if not center stage, then at least capable of making a difference. After all, when I joined, there were still people in the department who remembered the days when diplomats taped Solzhenitsyn manuscripts to their shins to smuggle them out of the USSR. This line of thinking inevitably leads to thoughts about how modern communications have eliminated the need for diplomats. Why spend a lifetime learning Mandarin and immersing yourself in Chinese culture when your foreign minister ignores you and swaps text messages directly with the Chinese ambassador? These are depressing thoughts when you're stuck in an airless office writing talking points for politicians who wouldn't care about them even if they had the time to read them. I realized Dorf was looking at me thoughtfully. This was unusual, since he was well known for his ostentatiously upward mobile style and chronic sense of urgency. He liked to burst into offices carrying piles of files, quickly making it clear to you that he'd only budgeted 30 seconds to do whatever it was he intended to do to you. Now he reminded me of a Russian hockey coach, worrying about moving a third-line winger up to the starting line after Team Canada enforcers incapacitated a star player. Fortunately, the awkward silence was broken when his secretary shouted from down the hall, You're late again! PCO wants to see your comments on the MC from EEA on the IEA ASAP! Dorf quickly glanced at the wall clock and, looking confused, checked his Blackberry. I decided not to tell him that I'd set the clock to Moscow time several weeks before, but had forgotten to set it back. He stood up and moved towards the door. Good, I guess. Fill out a travel form. I'll sign it tonight. Then he swirled off to redefine our foreign policy in Europe or to root out some deadwood. I looked at the clock again. Beside it was a photo of Smedling and me with Georgian ex-president Edward Shevardnadze. I recalled how Smedling had shifted his body into a more photogenic position just before the shutter clicked, resulting in my face being partially obscured by one of those cheap Inuit carvings we give unimportant heads of state whose compatriots have not immigrated in large numbers to marginal constituencies in Montreal. I wouldn't mind taking his posting to Brussels, I decided. But there was no time for such musings. I bolted for a travel form before Dorf changed his mind. To my surprise, Julian Utherweight was loitering just down the hallway. I knew instantly what had happened. I smiled and clapped him on the shoulder. You told Dorf to put me on his list, didn't you? Yep, and I may even have reminded him that Cumberland was still in rehab, Julian said quietly. I head back to Brussels tomorrow, but if your new recruit briefing is today, I'd love to help. Perfect, I said. I'll introduce you as the department's boy wonder. I'll even let you do Suez and Pearson's Nobel Prize. Thanks, replied Julian, and I'll introduce you as the only guy who taught me anything useful during my training rotations, back when I started. As long as you also mention, I have the record for most assists in the Moscow Diplomatic Hockey League. After that, I quickly filled in the travel form and presented myself seconds later in front of Dorf's secretary. Is this for Smedling? she asked, trying to read my hurried scrawl. Despite the fact that she used to be the secretary for the CEO of a big bank, she often seemed baffled by events at the department. You are to set Europe ablaze, I said majestically. She stared at me flatly, clearly unfamiliar with Churchill's instructions to the wartime saboteurs he dropped all over the continent. Well, I said, a bit deflated. Dorf didn't exactly say that, but that was the gist. She kept staring at me. It was different at the bank, she said finally, apropos of I don't know what, and slipped my travel form into the great man's signature book. Then I capered off down the hall to brief my surly underling 
on how she could fend off the policy and personal advances of the creepily charming Moldovan ambassador while I was gone. Thanks for listening to The Tarzan's Diplomat. I hope you enjoyed it. Check your iTunes feed next week for episode two. In the meantime, for more information or to leave a comment, visit keithhalliday.com or send an email to me, the author, at khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com.